Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It's in your church Bible on page 954. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind not, that, is, that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to, del to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are already unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you all in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedy people, swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Please be seated. As we come to this text this morning, we've got the opportunity to pray a little, to ask that God would open our eyes to the truth of his word, to pray for Andy, to rejoice with the Sims, and to also pray for uh, Lainey. Uh, many of you know Lainey Hopkins, uh, who's having surgery, or has had surgery this week. Uh, we pray for her recovery. So let's, let's come to our God and ask that he would be with us. Father, as Kurt has just reminded the children, you are our great provider. Although we think we have so many things, the truth is we only have you. You are our only provision. You are the source of all generosity and light and kindness in our lives. You are the one who has given to us and continues to give us even our every breath. So, Father, we mourn with Andy's family, but we don't do so without hope, knowing that Roy is with you at last at home. And we thank you, Father, for your provision for Justin and Betsy as they welcome little Eloise into their family. And we pray, Father, for Lainey's recovery, that you would be with her uh, this morning. Lord, open our eyes to the truth of your word, we pray. Amen. So here's a man, let's call him Ed. He was adopted uh, at birth by a poor family way out of town in the country. 
And growing up, he has never been told about his mysterious birth family. But he's curious, and so he and his friends one day when he's in his mid-teens go to visit the fortune teller at the county fair. And he's sitting there, and this old gypsy woman comes in and sits down. He crosses her palm with $10, and she uncovers a cloudy crystal ball on the table. And staring into it, he knows from the expression on her face that whatever she's seeing, something isn't good. Listen, she tells him, your folks, your birth parents, I mean, funny that she would know that he's adopted. Whatever you do, she says, don't go looking for them. It's not them, it's you. Bad things will happen if you ever go looking for mum or dad. Then before he can ask what she means, she pushes him out of the tent. Ed is sufficiently spooked by the lady's warning that when he leaves home, he goes to college at the other end of the state from the city where he thinks he was born. But on the way there, stopping off at a bar one evening, he gets into a fight with some drunken drifter who comes at him with a bottle. In self-defense, he puts the guy down permanently. The police conduct a short inquiry, but they can't identify the man. Regardless, they put it down to self-defense and Ed is allowed to go on his way. Shaken by this, he continues on to college. He enrolls as a math major, and one day in his junior year becomes the youngest person ever to crack some dusty old math theorem that mathematicians have been puzzling about for centuries. Doing so, he catches the attention of a glamorous divorcee and quite brilliant older woman, the head of the math department, and to both their surprise, it's love at first sight. Ed and Joe are married right before his graduation, his family arrives for graduation day, and he takes them over to meet his new bride. The blood drains from their faces as they realize they've met Joe before. This is Ed's birth mother. And if that wasn't enough of a shock, there's a police detective at the front door saying he knows now who the guy was that Ed decked at the bar on his way to college. Well, that would be Ed's father. Well, he didn't see that coming. The moral of the story is don't go visiting fortune tellers at the county fair. <laughs> Does the story sound at all familiar? Because it would have been extremely familiar to the ancient Greeks and especially to the people of Corinth, which is where the main character was trying to get away from. Ed, Oedipus, as in Oedipus wrecks pretty much everything. Which brings us to the Corinthian church. You know, Paul uses the word church more in writing to Corinth than in all his other epistles together. Why? Because even on the most disappointing days, these people were still his glory and his joy. The church of God in Corinth, the beautiful flower in the middle of the garbage dump. And loving them, he must reprimand them. So we find two stark reprimands by Paul for the church of God in Corinth. Again, because he loves them and because they need to be set straight. So if you would please open your Bible. We last week looked at chapter 6. This morning we are reversing, at least for a chapter, and going back to chapter 5. To see here the first of two reprimands. First here in these first couple of verses. This is the reprimand that Paul gives them. You should be alarmed, he's saying, by what is happening, but you're actually kind of pleased about it. So what is happening? Beyond all the divisions and the infighting that we've seen were part of Corinthian life, competitive people that they were. Look at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, 
for a man has his father's wife. Paul is not expressing shock that general sexual sin is tolerated. As he says in the Corinthian church, that would be alarming enough. No, he's expressing shock that this particular form of it should be occurring in the middle of a Christian church. So much so that your average Corinthian on his way back from the red light district, hearing about this in a city tavern, would have recoiled in disgust at such a rumor. What has happened? Well, reading between the lines, it seems an individual, perhaps a wealthy patron of the church, a member in high standing, someone who was looked up to as the head perhaps of a faction, has been having an affair with probably his stepmother. And the implication is that is she's still married to his father and that everybody knows about it, including his dad. It may seem strange that people in Corinth of all places would have been so upset by this kind of sexual sin, but remember Oedipus. In the Greek mind, this was a horror story, the kind that would invite the wrath of the gods. A man has his father's wife. And Paul is writing here in evident disbelief. The word actually here is the best translation of Paul struggling to grasp how they, because it's not just this one person, how they, the whole church and leadership, who Paul has spent three years discipling and pouring his life into, how could they have simply turned a blind eye to this? Well, Paul also may be struggling, I think, even to have to talk about this openly. This is something that we don't always credit when we read of Paul, but think of this. You know, one of my children uh, is neighbor to a group of rowdy Australians. The Australians, uh, my child said, Dad, they're rather crude, was their assessment. I was wondering what the best collective noun is for Australians, an outrage of Australians, perhaps, living next to an inhibition of Brits. Australia is what's known in anthropology as a low-context culture. They'll talk about anything in the easiest, in the, uh, sorry, earthiest of terms. It's part of their charm. Well, Paul wasn't like that. He was from what's described as a high-context culture. That's what Judaism was. That's what it was to be a former Pharisee. That was his cultural sensitivity. He writes in Ephesians 5 that sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. And what he's saying there, I think, is a reflection of how difficult this probably was for him to speak about such a thing to them in such direct terms. But notice, Paul, despite his own cultural sensitivities, is determined to bring this up. Why? Well, because the leaders of the Corinthian church have not. Instead, the whole church seems to have taken a deep dive from the highest diving board of moral blindness into something so utterly evil, and it hasn't apparently caused the slightest ripple on the millpondish serenity of church life. They're okay with it. The message translation captures it best, and you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. So much of the sexual rebellion in our own day has reacted to personal and cultural shame over sexual sin with a defensive defiance, pride, right? But the Corinthian church's response is different. It wasn't defiance. No, this is a kind of self-satisfied, spiritualized complacency. The word here means haughty, inflated, blown up. It really is the picture of someone who sees themselves as above all of these minor sinful things. They can coast above it. It's like one of those tiny puffer fish of the South Seas that can make itself three feet across. That's the image. 
And Paul's response is pained, isn't it? Verse 2, here's the message again. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Paul's showing them what a healthy spiritual response on behalf of a church leadership and a church congregation looks like. It's a response of heartbreak, of tears, of lamenting, a turning away from sin decisively and towards Christ, calling out a sin and repenting of it. What does evil look like? Well, the chief symptom, again, of this selfish, sinful heart in fallen human beings including those in the church, is not defiance, but indifference. Isn't it indifference that wealthy Western Christians have been confronted with this year, our indifference? You may not know this, but this is what many Christians in developing nations pray for the Western church in. Our indifference, because we have so much, our affluence, our security and our things, so that we care only about those things and not about the suffering of the poor or our obligation to others. Let your light so shine, Jesus says in Matthew 5, that people will see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That goodness should shine, I'm convinced, when the world sees a church turning decisively, like a beacon, away from its own indifference to its own sin and putting its house in order. You remember C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Four Loves, Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. I think that's Paul. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. That's the danger of indifference. That's what can happen to even a Christian church. What do we sing? Break my heart for what breaks yours is something we sing in a song quite regularly here. The last thing we have to see that this is in Corinth is some kind of high context sexual prudery on Paul's part. Now Paul is alarmed because his people, Jesus' people, are being taken apart by sin and they have no clue that there's even a problem. That's why he speaks in these terms. Second reprimand. You should be holding such Christians accountable, but you're too busy partying with them. Verses 2b through the end of the chapter. Ought you rather to mourn, he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's a bit of a mystery as to why the Corinthians aren't more bothered about this man's really extreme sin than they are. The standard explanation that most Christians would give is that somehow this church has been corrupted by the world around it. It's pure cells invaded by some secular virus. And there may be some of that. The Greeks, after all, had this view of the body, as Paul was going to explain in this next chapter in verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for the food, they said, which basically meant, why has God given us a stomach if he didn't mean us to get ridiculously sick and greedy? Like some of us with Nutella when no one's watching. 
But consider again who these people were and the context out of which they've been rescued. And we saw this last week. Given what we saw, this is chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It's not as if, think about this, it's not as if Paul went to the local Christian monastery or nunnery and dragged the sheltered monks and nuns there into the church in the stench of corrupting Corinth. No, the people that Paul describes on his list, you remember this, the sum of you in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6, could hardly be described as inexperienced in the ways of the world. Now, something else in a Christian context has permitted evil to get a foothold among them. Its foundation, I suggest, wasn't secular at all, but religious. You can see Paul hinting at this in chapter 6, verse 12. I have the right to do anything. He's mimicking what they would say, which in our culture, I think, would mean my right to do whatever I please. It's that idea which we're familiar with, right, which comes so readily to us. It's hard-baked into our Western idea of our independence, our right to be free. And it presents the Christian with a temptation to move away from submission to the cross, away from mutual obligation under the gospel to each other, and into a kind of grace-sanctioned free zone where, unbeknownst to us, we are getting snared by the sinfulness of some pride or some other sin. This isn't just an ancient world thing, after all. You may know there was an evangelical movement which began in the 70s. It's still going today, although today it's now a New Age cult. It was operating at its height in 130 countries. It brought over 100,000 people to Christ in its heyday. So passionate was it for evangelism and for people discovering the liberty of the grace of the gospel. It was popular. If you read the biography of Joaquin Phoenix, he and his brother River and the others grew up within this church. Its leader, David Berg, started off as a CNMA pastor. But it developed over time because of a misreading of the gospel, a habit of manipulation, of abuse, and quite horrific sexual practice. What's fascinating is that it wasn't corrupted by the world. In fact, it walled itself off from the world. But away from public scrutiny, it's striking how people in it who believed all the right things doctrinally could take pride at the same time in doing what one contemporary commentator said are things too sordid to bear repeating. It sounds like Paul. The sexual abuse and the exploitation of that group has sadly been repeated in any number of ministries and entire denominations since. You can read about the family of God international on your own. It's a cautionary tale. The lesson is, is that we have three enemies. We still have them, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And while Christians are doing their best to avoid the world, the devil is more than willing to have us seduced under a religious guise by our own flesh, which means our own natural inclination to sin, and our readiness to be duped by it in the face of what we think is right doctrine. What should happen if this starts to take root in a church? Well, Paul's diagnosis is severe, you'll notice, and his approach is uncompromising. What should the church do with this person? Well, they should assemble together. And although Paul is not there, he says he is there with them in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, verse 2, remove him. Purge him from the body, verse 7. Expel him, verse 12. 
I think we misunderstand this if we think this is simply about this man. This isn't just a critique of him. No, if the church had cared for him, had loved him, paid attention to disciple him sooner, the situation might have been less severely remedied. Paul uses the biblical imagery of yeast, verses 6 through 8, which you may remember the Israelites were told to remove from their houses <coughs> completely before the Passover came. For us, I suppose, the image of gangrene in the tissues of the body would do just as well. The point is, if you don't deal with your sin, Paul is saying, it won't just remain dormant. It won't just disappear on its own. Its tendency will be to spread, to spread in the person and in the church. People will tell you that there's no sense of formal church membership in the New Testament, but it's really striking that all of the verbs that Paul just used assume some form of formal commitment. After all, you can't be taken out of something that you are not in. They all imply a necessary radical surgery without which the integrity of the gospel, the church and the individual will all be placed in danger. What does this practically mean? It seems so foreign to modern Western minds, almost archaic that anything like this should happen, almost medieval. But it's as much a part of scripture and scriptural practice as anything else that we read about in Paul's letters. What does it practically mean? Well, Paul tells the church to hand this man over to Satan, which always sounded to me like the script of some 70s horror movie. But it simply means to put him outside the fellowship of the church. And it's striking to me that Paul should put it that way in such extreme language. Because when we think of somebody being removed from the membership of the church, it seems to us a fairly academic, administrative affair. But Paul is saying, obviously there was only just one church in Corinth. Paul is saying, if you're outside the church, there's no place else to go. I don't want to move too quickly from the extremity of Paul's language. But to be outside the church of Jesus is to be spiritually under the dominion of the prince of this world, as Jesus called him. It's important that we do see the severity of this. But by the destruction of the flesh, Paul is not talking about the person dying or being taken out by some church assassination squad. My grandfather used to tell me, um, I remember this when I was a teenager, about his place on the church bereavement committee, which always struck me as a little bit like the mafiosi. But of course it wasn't that. No, the flesh in this sense is not our physical tissues. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says the destruction of this man's flesh, right? He's talking about the sin nature in him that only exclusion from the gospel, being out in the desert, as it will, away from the oases of the gospel of grace, will teach him to let go of. David Garland, in his commentary, defines the flesh this way. He says it's the sin-bent self, characterized by self-sufficiency, that wages war against God. It functions like a force field and can only be counteracted and neutralized by the power of the Spirit. It's vital that we think about this. If you think about the way in which you are characterized by self-sufficiency, I know the way I'm characterized by self-sufficiency. 
The root of that is the flesh. The root of that is our independent streak that would take us away from God and refuse to be under his control in any way. Church discipline, you see, is not some silly system of control by small-minded people who needed to get out more. No, church discipline operates by this biblical fact. If you don't deal with your sin, it will eventually deal with you. See, the problem's not remedied, this is the irony, by simply moving churches. Why? Because the person's problem is not actually with the church. It's with their own heart and it's with the God that they're running from. Following Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18, discipline starts, and this is true for any church that's following a gospel pattern for this from Matthew 18. It starts always with private conversations. It doesn't mean that you have a friend that you're going to share about in your private prayer group and let's just keep this confidential. But do you know so-and-so? It's not some end run around going to speak to the person. You must go to that person directly if you have a concern for them. It is private confession of sin. It is private forgiveness. It is private reconciliation. It is private restoration. That's the way it starts. And it's wonderful that this this place of real life-changing healing is meant to to be a regular part of church life because Paul nor any other author uh, in the New Testament or the Old is assuming that we will be without sin. In fact, the assumption is quite the opposite and that we do need to deal with it in community with each other because we love each other, not because we are scared of impugning someone's character or suggesting for a moment that they might be a sinner like us. But if things aren't addressed, if there's a pride that sets in, a refusal, a stubbornness to listen even to two people, this is following what Jesus says in Matthew 18, then it must come eventually to the church and to the church in a Presbyterian context, we mean the elders, whose responsibility is to challenge that person to turn back from the course that they are on. And when talking is done, if that person isn't listening anymore, more dramatic steps must be taken. Excommunication, literally removing somebody from the communion or from the membership of the church is one option, but there are others which are less severe also. People get worried that churches follow the New Testament pattern, will shun people so that you will see somebody in the grocery store and kind of hide in behind the, uh, I don't know, the bean counter or whatever, trying to stay away from them, not see them, refuse that they exist. That's not a New Testament picture of the way that this works. You're not seeking to shame people. You're not seeking to ultimately exclude people in that way. But you're not going to pretend that things are normal. In Paul's context, he wasn't going to have these folks over for supper and a light chit-chat Notice verse 11. If someone is excommunicated, it's not loving to them or to the church to pretend that everything is normal if you see them. Rather, the way that it's appropriate to treat them is someone who doesn't know the loving kindness of the Lord, who has moved outside of the bonds of the church, someone who might be treated again in the same way as you might treat someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. But what they have to know and what everyone has to face the fact of is that something monumental has happened. 
You know, when the church loses somebody in this way, it is a monumental thing. It's not something that we can pretend is just simply a matter of moving from one church to another. It's not something that we can pretend is simply a disagreement between the leadership of a church or between one person and another. If a person moves outside of a fellowship in this way, knowing that they've gone through a process of discipline and they have rejected that discipline, well then, it's serious. The church has had to react in this way because like a body that's in danger because of gangrene, if you will, a toe has had to be cut off. But also, for the sake of that person, they need to know that things are serious enough that it has come to this. Because this is what sin does. This is what the flesh does. It blinds us so that we don't see the severity of what our sin has brought us to. So this is a dynamic thing. Does this work? I have to say it does. I remember someone years ago who walked away from their marriage, caught up in some adulterous affair, and some of us walked with them through a process of what repentance looked like. And they chose to go on and continue in sin. We removed them from membership and two years later, I remember this, the day that they came into to my office, out of the cold into a gloriously reconciled moment with their spouse and with the church. They turned from their sin and we had a public celebration of their return to Christ. That's the process that Paul has in view and that's how serious this is. You know, Augustine once said there's no salvation outside the church. He didn't mean that any one denomination is the only place that God will save people. No, he meant that when you're out there in the cold, when you're estranged from the place where God's people are, and you know that however you justify it, the problem is way bigger and deeper than simply your disagreement with one particular local church. When you see that you're outside the gospel, There is no more lonely place to be, estranged from the God of all grace, and there's only one place to come home to. So this is serious stuff, which bears out the extremity of what Paul's talking about. You know, if you ever read any of these passages and you think, it's not much, sometimes it's a reflection of the insensitivity of our own heart, that we have been desensitized living in the culture we're in, or perhaps in our own flesh, to the sinfulness of sin. So how about you as we close? I think it bears repeating, doesn't it, that this is a good opportunity for self-examination, perhaps for sitting down with a friend and asking, how are you? How are you with God? You know, we're close friends, so you can tell me. I really want to know. And if it's easier, I'll start by telling you some of my stuff. It's easy in our transient age to hide not only from other people, but also from ourselves. And we need to have these kinds of conversations with people if we love people. How are you really doing? What about that sin that you've struggled with in the past? What about those things that we know keep us from God and make us sleepy towards him even wanting to avoid him and then remind your friend that here in Jesus we have been shown the God who loves us who knows where we've been sleeping 
but who has given his life not so that we should hide again behind a mask of religious conformity, but that we should be truly free, truly free from all the things that have imprisoned us in community, in regular relationship, honest relationship with others. So Christ's rescue is designed to be total. It won't be total until the day that you and I are glorified when you die. But I think this is the great encouragement that this process is here at all. Doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it does mean you need to be watching out for yourself and for others, going to them personally if you have a concern. And I would say to you, if you need help, then please come, talk to someone, talk to a friend. Talk to one of us on staff, male or female, as fits your gender. Go to your community group. What is a church? It is a fellowship of failure in so many ways, but it is redeemed and being redeemed by the power of Jesus Christ. So this is serious, but it's also life-giving. And we should pray this for our church and for the churches of Richmond. So to sum up with, we should be alarmed by our tolerance for what is not the way of Christ among us. We should be holding each other accountable that Christ might reign here. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are holy, that you are just, that you are utterly good, that there is no shadow of darkness in you. What a terrible life and universe this would be if we didn't know that there was such a person who has not remained aloof and proud but has come into our world in the person of your son, Jesus, to communicate your holiness and as part of that holiness, your rescuing love. Lord God, help us never to forget the gospel, not to forget it when we have sinned, not to forget it when we find a brother or a sister who we know is being trapped again as we are liable to be trapped. Help us, Lord, not to look down in pride or condemnation at others, but with that same humility which looks in the mirror at our own frailty and tendency to sin can come alongside another in the mercy of Jesus. Lord, would you keep us, we pray, and would you guide your church in Christ's name. Amen.